you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. LAist Studios. A quick warning. Some of the series includes descriptions of graphic violence. At around 3.30 p.m. on May 9th, 1980, Deputy Sheriff Andrew Delgado Monti was finishing up working the traffic beat in Norco, California with a fellow officer. Well, we're, we're standing by the cars and in Riverside, we had an alert tone that the dispatchers push a button and it would send out a tone to all the cars. They would go beep. When that went off, everybody listened because something hot is going to be put over the radio. Riverside Narco units have a 211 in progress. Security Pacific Bank, 4th and Hamner. Something bad's happening. 350, the suspect vehicle is a green van with weapons. It was broadcast over the radio. Armed suspects seen entering the bank. Only seconds after the bank robbery was announced on the broadcast, an officer had arrived and the shooting had begun. We threw our coffee down, we jumped in our cars, and we hear Belaski. Glenn Belaski jump on the radio screaming bloody murder. Officer hit, clear the air, 1199. Shot, open hammer. I'm Antonia Cerejido, and from Elias Studios and Futuro Studios, This is Norco 80, a series about God, guns, survivalism, and the bank robbery that changed policing forever. Chapter two, the firefight. What would happen when George Smith and the other suspects exited the bank? The first car that showed up at the scene, the officer got out. Were you shooting at him? Yes. I had just away bullets, like a, you know, just a wild firefighter. As George Smith would admit the next day, what happened right outside the bank was a blur to him. The detective asked him if he remembered shooting any officers at that time. Did you guys hit any officers at that time? Nobody knew. It was just burst. It was just like uh, bullets were flying everywhere. George said nobody knew. It was just a burst. Bullets were flying everywhere. George and the other suspects carried semi-automatic weapons, which were legal. But that level of firepower was rarely seen outside of the military. The police were shocked to see that kind of gun in the hands of bank robbers. And that was before they realized the suspects also had homemade bombs. Where did you guys get the materials for the bombs and so on you're throwing at the patrol units? Uh, I made them out of uh, glass and powder. How did you make them? Uh, I got uh, crushed glass, lead slugs, nails. 
After the arrest, law enforcement would recover two packed nylon duffel bags George had prepared for the robbery. In them, they would find maps, a compass, water purification tablets, mess kits, gas masks, emergency blankets, extra clothing, a knife, two machetes, and even a samurai sword. George would say he was just being overcautious. I just got overcautious. Oh, yeah. The whole plan in itself was to roll in and roll out. I didn't have enough. He says the plan itself was to roll in and roll out. But it didn't happen that way. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Hi, Andrew. Hi. How's it going? I'm fine. How about yourself? Deputy Sheriff Andrew Delgado Monti was the second officer to arrive on the scene the day of the bank robbery. Talking to Andrew, you realize he's the kind of man who makes no effort to hide the chip on his shoulder. I don't deny what I know now. Here's how he talked to me about his police training days. Did you make friends along the way? Sure. Enemies too. Andrew's Mexican-American, and he feels his identity has a lot to do with how he's been treated. Well, you make an enemy, right, when you, when you first walk in the door, if you look like me. Growing up, he was raised by migrant farm workers. When you were a kid, like if somebody was looking at your kindergarten class photo, who were you in your class? Well, I was always the smallest guy around. Started when I went to school, certainly kindergarten. And I remember, I remember that very clearly, actually. I've always been, I'm, a, I'm five foot four, small guy. Even though he grew up in East L.A., he was often one of the only kids who looked like him in his classrooms of the late 50s and early 60s. And people were, uh, you know, not the nicest on the planet to minority kids. Kids would pick fights with Andrew, call him racial slurs. During this time, when he felt like the odd kid out, he would look forward to when his uncles, who were in the military, would come visit. Men who looked like him, but clearly belonged to something, something bigger. Well, they looked special. One would come in and he'd have his uniform on, he'd be wearing his ribbons, and he just looked like a million dollars and so neat and clean and impressive in his uniform. I thought, well, you know, I want to be that someday. And, and he would. At 18, Andrew joined the Marines. But after four years, he decided he wanted to settle down. And when thinking about what to do next, his first thought was to continue work in the service, to become a police officer. However, I didn't think that was ever going to happen, but that's what I wanted. Because typically, if you look historically uh, in police work, you know, the typical big Irish cop pinching the apples on his footbeat, that's what police work was, big white males. That's what it was all about. According to Andrew, in the late 70s, just one Latino officer in a department was an anomaly. And to an extent, this is still true today. A recent study showed that people of color are underrepresented nationally in law enforcement. Latinos make up just 12% of the police force. And of all the ethnic groups, are the most disproportionately underrepresented. Women were uh, actually the ones that opened the door for me to become a law enforcement officer. In that, there is a lawsuit for having a height requirement that it was discriminatory against women because women are typically shorter than men. A lot of police departments, sheriff's departments, you had to be like 5'10". And so throughout the country and in California, they started lowering that height requirement to the point where they finally uh, eliminated it. And then when that happened, that opened the door for me. Andrew officially became a police officer in 1974. And I remember suiting up, putting on my sheriff's uniform and my Sam Brown, my gun belt, et cetera, and all my stuff. 
and take it out to my car and get my shotgun ready and all the stuff that I trained was trained to do. Then I was what we call 10-8, which means that's a 10 code for in-service. I thought, I'm really driving around a black and white cop car and I'm a cop. And I thought that was pretty cool. Andrew ended up in the Riverside Sheriff's Office. His department was responsible for a huge swath of land, more than 7,000 square miles that included everything from wilderness areas to Indian reservations, small desert towns like Norco, and large farmlands. It could be a lonely job. The sheriff's department had a strict one cop per car regulation. There were days Andrew would drive for miles, seeing only a couple cows or horses. Andrew drove around the county armed with a single revolver on his dashboard. That was standard. And before May 9th, 1980, he thought that gun was enough. It wasn't the most powerful gun on the market, but he liked the feel of it. It was another essential part of his getup. I've seen the pictures and there are a lot of mustaches and bell bottoms. So I am also curious just like what, how it looked. Um, but yeah, what was the whole feeling at the time? Well, you know, at the time, I long hair, you know, longer hair anyway. It seemed like all the cops and firefighters as well, but we all had mustaches. <laughs> the culture was in society at that time. I think that was back in the day of Saturday Night Fever, you know, the John Travolta and all that. Even with his matching mustache, Andrew had trouble fitting in with the other officers. A couple weeks before the bank robbery, the other cops invited him to a party. Andrew had been looking forward to a laid back night. And we're going to watch Animal House, the John Belushi. I don't know if you remember that movie or not. Yes. Uh, uh, it's a funny movie. Toga, 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 toga. But when Andrew got there, things felt really off. There are like six or seven deputies in there. One of them is a guy that he and I just did not get along. And he was, he was very vocal about that. And here's these guys all sitting on the couch, all drinking beer. They got a porn movie going on. Oh, my gosh. In the living room there. And the guy that I was having a problem with, his seven-year-old kid was sitting in front of that TV watching that porn movie with the rest of these guys. And they're all hooting and all that. And I look at these guys, and I saw that guy, and I saw that kid. I chugged my beer. I looked at front and said, you know, I got to go, man. Actually, I really can't stay. Bye, you know, see ya. And that guy starts spouting off, calling me names, calling me a wetback. Dumb Mexican. Nobody liked me. Nobody likes Mexicans. I said, let's go outside. Let's go on a patio out here, pal. And now everybody poured out. And the sad commentary for me when I had a reflection, not one of those deputy sheriffs that was there told that guy to stop saying those things. That he shouldn't say those things to me or anybody. And he called me everything racial you can imagine related to, derogatory related to a Latino, Hispanic. They didn't tell him to stop. They weren't concerned about it. But they wanted to see us fight. So we went outside. We were standing on his porch, and he started with the name calling again. So I turned around, and I dropped him. I punched him and knocked him off the porch, and then I went down there, and he got up, and I proceeded to kick his ass all over that patio. What made you want to stay in an organization that you immediately knew was racist or discriminatory? I was determined not to allow anybody to run me out of something that I wanted. I was not going to let anybody take money out of my pocket. I was supporting my family with that job. 
just because they didn't like the way I looked, or more importantly, perhaps because I didn't look like them. Andrew was worried he would be punished by the higher-ups. Beating up a fellow cop could be the cause of suspension. He laid low for the next couple weeks. After two weeks of silence, he started to forget about the whole incident. That is until May 8th, 1980, the day before the robbery, when the Riverside deputy chief stopped Andrew in the hallway. He says, I want you in my office tomorrow, 7.30 a.m. sharp. You got it? It's personal. So I show up the next morning, instead of the deputy chief, it's the sheriff that comes out and gets me. I was waiting there in the lobby. The third eye was getting promoted. It was a huge relief. He wasn't in trouble, and he was going to accomplish a longtime goal of his, to become a detective. Told my wife about it. I'd just been telling her the night before, I didn't think I was going to ever get promoted. And I was very happy about that. Andrew felt a lightness that day as he worked his traffic patrol in downtown Norco. His fellow patrolman, Chuck Hill, asked to get a coffee at the end of their shift. Chuck was single and he was kind of a ladies' man, he was a good-looking guy, and I knew he had a little girlfriend or a girl that he liked at the Winchells of all places, you know, cops at Winchells. Winchells is a popular donut chain in California. I said, well, you want to go to Winchells? And he goes, no, no, let's go up to Sixth and Hammer, that area. There's another donut shop there called the Donut Corral. And I said, okay. So we went over there and we parked under a tree there and we went and got some coffee, came back out to our cars, we're standing next to our patrol cars, talking, talking about life and our days back in the desert. Andrew looked out over the main street of downtown Norco. In many ways, it looked like main streets all across the country. A slew of fast food chains, gas stations, and supermarkets. But behind all this, in every direction Andrew turned, he could see the sloping desert mountains, the looming rugged western landscape. So we're back there, and he goes, hey, what's going on with you? Are you sick or what? You haven't done anything all day. But I couldn't help myself, and I told Chuck, I said, hey, I I got promoted investigator this morning. He congratulated me, and he told me that I was a good cop, and he was glad that I got promoted. You didn't know it at the time, but you were, like, really close to where the robbers were at that moment. Two blocks north, one block east from the bank. Yeah, we obviously had no clue that those guys were getting ready to do that. Hi. Hi. I should have made it a minute and 30 seconds instead of two minutes. Five fucked up. Meanwhile, the robbers, money in hand, were exiting through the double doors of the bank. By chance, an officer, Deputy Sheriff Glenn Belaski, was around the corner when the police dispatch went out. Two seconds later, he was on the scene. The robbers dove into the 70s-style van they had stolen earlier as the officer drove into the busy bank parking lot. What would happen next is debated, but most witnesses would later testify that the robbers began firing on the officer the moment he drove up. The officer tried to stay low in his seat while yanking his car into reverse, backwards, out of the lot and into the middle of the road. Then he grabbed his shotgun. Only 21 seconds after the dispatch call went out, the firefight had begun. Andrew and his fellow patrolmen heard the first officer on the radio. 
We threw our coffee down, we jumped in our cars. Andrew slammed on his gas pedal, heading towards the bank. Terrifying radio broadcast. And I'm thinking, holy cow, he's had it. I'm thinking, I'm gonna get these guys. They're, they, they're not gonna get away. We'll be right back. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. LAist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com events. The first officer at the scene had been shot. Riverside Dolly units, units at the location are being fired upon. Units been hit. He was also shooting back, back towards the van with George and the robbers who were trying to escape the bank parking lot. All the while, Gary Hakala, the kidnapped owner of the van, is still tied up in his vehicle's closet. And when they got into the van, the sound is echoing, and uh, you know there was a 308 a high-caliber rifle, inches from my ear. Things got real loud. I can hear the bullets hit the van. The shots coming from, you know, I didn't know who it was. I didn't know if it was a cop or a, or a security guard, but, you know, I can hear the little pops coming from, from his revolver. The suspect driving the van managed to get out of the parking lot and onto the road, still taking bullets. The van speeds off and does a U-turn. I can hear breaking glass in the van. Every piece of glass is shattered. The rear view mirror, the side mirrors, the, there's not a piece of glass left in the van. And all of a sudden, as the shotgun blast comes through the window, it missed me by an eighth of an inch and my face is pressed against the side of the door to the closet. I can feel the van all of a sudden decelerate. One pellet from that shotgun broke the neck of the driver and he slumps forward and we crash into something which I can see out the back is a chain link fence. The driver was wounded, but it wasn't clear if the shot had killed him. The other suspects filed out of the van and continued to fire at the first police officer. Andrew, who was rushing to the scene from the donut corral, finally turned onto the street of the bank. And as we're getting closer, I'm within a half a block of the bank. But at first he couldn't see the robbers or the first officer on the scene who continued to yell in pain over the radio. I got on the wrist, where are they? 
That's when I saw him and that's when I heard the gunfire. When Andrew got to the scene, the van was still revving into the chain link fence. The driver slumped in the front seat. Traffic was backed up at the intersection. Nobody was going through the intersection because of all this. It was a busy intersection with a feed store for horses and a Carl's Jr. The people were lined up like they were watching a movie. After the four remaining robbers had filed out of the van, they had not lost track of the first officer who continued to shoot towards them from behind his car. They were taking turns rotating, shooting at Belaski. The suspects were ducking behind the van doors and popping back up, a maneuver Andrew recognized from his military training. They didn't hear me come up because I turned off my siren. Quickly, Andrew's car screeched to a halt. Jumped out with my shotgun, and I fired four shotgun blasts into this group of men about 40 yards away or so. And I thought, well, this is over. They're not surviving four shotgun blasts going at them. Well, nobody fell down. And one of them turned around, the point guy, the guy that was doing uh, at the front of the van, and pointed at me. And I knew they were going to start shooting at me when he did that. Four men, armed with semi-automatic weapons, turned their attention on Andrew. Thinking as fast as he could, Andrew started to weigh his odds. I didn't think I was going to survive with all these guys, with all these guns. He had never seen anyone out in the field with as much firepower as these men. His handgun seemed puny compared to their AR-15s. He dove on the ground and scrambled underneath his patrol car. He continued to shoot in their direction. As he came to the conclusion that he was going to die, Andrew's mind went to something mundane. I was laying on the ground and it was payday and we got paid with paper checks back then. And I had mine in my left breast pocket And while I was reloading my shotgun, I was actually thinking the detectives were going to be going through my pockets, which they do when you got somebody's laying there dead. They're going to find my paycheck and that they're going to have to send it back to payroll and have another one issued for my wife. I mean, I thought that very quickly. But suddenly, a glimmer of hope. Backup. I see a black and white sheriff's car. It was the other patrolman Andrew had just been having coffee with, Chuck Hill. They had split up on the way to the scene, taking different roads in order to potentially cut off the suspects. He came up, he turned right into that, uh, for that feed store, made a U-turn, drove back across 4th. He had turned around and was going towards the first officer who had been shot. He wasn't coming to cover Andrew. A lot of mixed emotions going on in an event like that. Uh, I was very happy about that Hill was saving his life, or at least trying to, but I was certain that I was not gonna survive. Meanwhile, the suspects were hurting. Nothing had gone to plan. George Smith would later tell the detective Andrew had successfully shot three of them. And then we were catching bullets from all angles. I got hit. Uh, man, man, he got nicked in the face and the rest got nicked. He says Andrew's bullets were hitting them from all angles. And with their van totaled, they knew their only path for escape was stealing another car. You, you abandoned the van, right? Well, we tell tell me how you got the second vehicle. We ran up there and just uh, told the man to get out, of the, get out of the truck or get his head blown off in that respect. And we wouldn't have blown his head off, though. Mike Linville was a 24-year-old mechanic. He was on his way home and stopped at a light when he saw the green van crash into the chain link fence. He realized he was in the middle of a firefight. Pretty, pretty crazy situation, you know. But I didn't have a whole lot of time to think about much. I just wanted to get the hell out of there. And bullets were ricocheting off of my truck. 
Mike caught glimpses of the robbers while he was trying to keep his head down. They were all wearing uh, ski masks and army fatigues, you know. All of a sudden, Mike saw one of the suspects spot him. I was looking up over the top of the dash, just, just my eyeballs, you know. I locked eyes with this one guy. He was a pretty good-sized guy, and uh, he had his rifle up in the air at that point. But then the suspect lowered it and pointed it towards Mike as he started to charge towards him. I mean, I'd already seen these guys shoot, shoot it out with the coppers, you know. I knew he wasn't going to open the door and ask me if I wanted to loan him the truck. I threw my door open. I went out the driver's door, and they were coming in the passenger door. The suspects hijacked Mike's yellow truck. I rolled out onto the pavement and took off running. And then I stopped and looked back, and those guys were loading bags of bombs and ammunition and guns and everything else into the truck. Then they smashed into the car in front of me and um, blasted their way out of the intersection. Before the robbery, the suspects had set up another getaway car just a couple blocks away from the bank. If they could get there, they could still escape. But as they looked to exit the intersection, there was one thing in their way. Andrew. So here they come. There was no cover as they got alongside me. And I put my head under the left rear tire. When we hear Andrew talk about this whole scene today, 40 years later, he's almost clinical about it. There's an emotional distance. But at the time, on the radio traffic, he sounded terrified. They accelerated in his direction. Guns pointed. Andrew took stock of his situation and his surroundings as he prepared for impact. The suspects in the yellow pickup truck were driving straight towards him. I figured I might be able to survive a hit in the body. And I had a vest on, but it wouldn't have worked with those rifles. I saw him stop, and I said, well, if I see any feet, I'll come out and we'll just have to go toe to toe. I had six rounds in my handgun, and I'll just shoot as many of them as I can before they kill me. But I'm not going to let them walk over there and shoot me laying on the ground under that car. So they stopped, fired my car up, fired me up, you know, fired up the patrol car and the ground around me. They didn't know where I was at, which was good. It was, I think, pretty obvious at that point that they thought I did some kind of disappearing act, which I did. And then they took off. We'll be right back. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com slash events. See you there. How to LA is our love letter to Los Angeles. We'll tell you where to get a yummy torta, a bowl of kanji, and of course, a burger. It's a beef sausage blend, fried egg, grilled onions, and then raspberry jam. 
what hiking trails to check out. This feels like we're out in the mountains. And where to take in some culture. Lumert Park, they've been fostering jazz for decades. LA is a big place with a lot going on. So we got you. Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. Relief washed over Andy. The robbers were gone and he was alive. But relief was met with another familiar sensation, that of resentment. Resentment towards his fellow officers. And I believe then and I believe now that he left me there to die. They weren't willing to fight to the death. In the middle of a fight, you don't leave until the fight's over, no matter who's hurt. That's when you leave. Then you go out and help people that are hurt, whatever, but you don't leave. The other two officers from the scene did not want to be interviewed on tape. But Chuck Hill recently said, I'm sorry Andy still feels that way. We never made a decision to leave him alone. But in the end, we probably did. You feel like the brotherhood kind of let you down. I felt that the brotherhood in police work is there, but not what I thought it was. Why do Marines do what they do in combat? Is it for God, country, core? It's for each other. I imposed that belief and value on police work. We were not a brotherhood. And when it comes down to it, yeah, when the odds are in our favor, you can expect the cops to be around. But if the scales get tipped a little bit, that you're going to be on your own. And in this case, the scales were very much on the bad guy's side because there's more of them than there was of us, and they had bigger, badder weapons, and they were using them. Andrew says this bank robbery in Norco is when he came to the conclusion that his revolver wasn't enough to protect him. He told me, if there's no one else to back you up, all you have is your weapon. We need to have better firepower than the bad guys. The odds have to be in our favor. Andrew was still processing what had just happened to him as more officers finally arrived on scene. Meanwhile, someone else, very close by, was also feeling forgotten. Where was the guy that owned the van all this time? Tied up. Tied up where? In, uh, in his uh, cabinet. Gary Hakala was still in the back of the van. I'm alone in the van, rocking back and forth. There was guns all over the place. There was homemade bombs on the floor, money on the floor. The robbers had managed to take about $20,000 from the bank, and they'd left it spread out all over the back of the van. I was kind of thinking, gee, I'd sure like to put some of that money in my pockets, but <laughs> obviously I, I couldn't do that. And I had held my composure as long as I, I could at that point. I break out of that closet, and I see the driver slumped over, and uh, he's not dead. People don't die like they do in the movies. They sometimes uh, hang on for a while, and he was sort of gurgling and uh, shaking, going through uh, sort of, his body was sort of trembling. Uh, He could easily reach a, a couple of handguns and finish me off. I... Uh, struggle to look out the back window of the van and by now there are numerous police across the street with their guns pointed at the van. 
One of those officers was Andrew. We're still watching this van. It's sitting there and it starts to move. Starts to roll backwards a little bit and off to the left. Well, I thought suspect was in there trying to get away. So I jumped up and I had my shotgun, you know, I was pointing, we're all putting our guns down there. Next thing we know, a man appears in the passenger door window and he's, and he's shouting and I can't understand him. And he's yelling and yelling. I'm a hostage, I'm a hostage, I need help. I was a little disappointed I didn't get help. And I think about going out the back window. Well, I'm taped up, I'm gonna break my neck trying to get out. So I go to the side door and I use my teeth and, and slide that cargo door open. The van's still moving back and forth. And uh, I uh, roll out of the van, I, I roll on the ground. He had his hands taped behind his back, tied behind his back, and his legs taped together like a mummy. And I can't really roll because my shoulder is in such pain. So I'm kind of crawling like a like a caterpillar, you know, with my my chin and my my knees as best I can. There are people looking out the window of the of the restaurant at me there, you know, no one's gonna come help me. But finally this this lady cop comes and uh, tells me to get down. And I <laughs> forget you, man. Just get this tape off of me. You know, it hurts so bad, you know, that it, you're, you're numb. Again, I'm going to reiterate, I, I had to pee. <laughs> and so she gets the tape off. And, of course, I relieve myself in front of all those people. I didn't care at that point. Gary got into the officer's car and was driven away to give his testimony. The battle between the robbers and the police was only just getting started, but there was already irrevocable loss. Who got killed at the bank? Billy. Billy? What was his last name? Delgado. Billy Delgado? The getaway driver, a 17-year-old boy named Belisario Delgado, who everyone called Billy, was dead. He was the driver of the van? And one of my best friends, yes. Next week on Norco 80... Nobody's heard our side of the story. What happened in the lead-up to the robbery? They were digging a tunnel for the purpose of if um, a bomb hits or something. Yeah, they would talk about stuff like that. They would talk about how it's coming to an end. is written and produced by me, Antonia Cerejido, and by Sofia Paliza Carr. The show is a production of LAist Studios in collaboration with Futuro Studios. Leo G is the executive producer for LAist Studios. Marlon Bishop is the executive producer for Futuro Studios. Audrey Quinn is our editor. Joaquin Kotler is our associate producer. Juan Diego Ramirez is our production assistant. Maria Alexa Kavanaugh is our intern. Fact-checking by Amy Tardiff. Engineering by Stephanie LeBeau. Original music by Zach Robinson. This podcast is based on the book Norco 80 by Peter Houlihan. Our website is designed by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at Elias Studios. The marketing team of Elias Studios created our branding. Thanks to the team at Elias Studios, including Kristen Hayford, Taylor Kaufman, Kristen Muller, and Leo G. 
If you want to hear more about Norco 80, please follow or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, the iHeart app, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please don't forget to rate and review the show. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. All seven states on the Colorado River may have to cut back water, but not everyone agrees on how. From Coloradans who blame others for the crisis. There continues to be a look upstream to solve a problem that we did not create. To farmers who may lose their livelihoods. We don't want to cut equal with everybody else. Will they reach a deal in time? Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.